Good morning, Redeemer Church. My name is Eric Zeller. It's a great privilege to open God's Word together with you today. We've been for the last weeks in a series where we study the miracles of Jesus. And so today we come to the last miracle, the climactic miracle, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Let's pray as we go to God's Word. Our Father, thank you for the privilege it is to be your people, to be gathered as your people sitting under your word. So Father, we pray for the time that we're about to have that your word would be proclaimed with clarity, that we would see the truth that our Savior wants us to see in this true account of him raising a man from the dead. May you remove from our eyes the, the scales of familiarity. May we sit in awe of our Savior, of his power, and of his call. So, Father, we pray that you would convict our hearts with your word today. May we see your glory, and may you be glorified in us as we go from here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn to John chapter 11. Once upon a time, there were three siblings. The brother was named Lazarus, and he had two sisters named Mary and Martha. And you see in verse 1, a certain man was ill. It was Lazarus. See, these are close friends of Jesus. Jesus uh, has stayed in their house before. They live in this town called Bethany. It's just as close to Jerusalem as we are to Dara City Center. So it's just there. He's come. He's visited. He stayed with them. They've, they've provided hospitality for him. As we see in verse 2 later, Mary is the one who is going to pour out expensive perfume and anoint Jesus' feet in preparation for his death. As we see in verse 3, look at it. It says, this is he whom you love. Jesus loves Lazarus. He loves this family. They are very close, but Lazarus gets sick. People get sick all the time. Sickness is part of life, but this seems pretty quickly to be more than an ordinary illness. Uh, as we don't know how long it took for it to develop and to, 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 to take hold, but pretty soon it's apparent Lazarus is not doing well. Maybe he had malaria. Maybe he had dysentery. Maybe it was plague. We don't know what he had, but he's deteriorating. They, he, he's dying. They probably had the local medicine man from the village out to see him. He probably got some different herbs and sort of mixed them up and made some weird tea and gave it to him. It didn't help. This man is not doing well. But they know what to do. They know Jesus. They're friends with Jesus. They've, they've seen Jesus heal. Surely he can heal Lazarus. They've seen him do miracles. Wouldn't he want to do one for his friend? So they send a messenger. They send him to Jesus. But there's a problem. There's a complication. Jesus is not here. Jesus is not nearby because if you, if you look at just the previous chapter in John chapter 10... Jesus is in Jerusalem nearby Bethany for the Feast of Dedication. He says, I and the Father are one. The Jews pick up stones to stone him. They're going to they're gonna lynch him right there on the spot. And so he, he leaves. He, he gets out of town. He goes to a remote place while things can settle down. We don't know exactly where he is at this point. Our best guess is he's in this area called Batania. It's about 150 kilometers northeast of where they are in Bethany. Four days walk at least. So the messenger goes, and with each day, as he, this guy's out looking for Jesus, Lazarus is here, he's at home, and he's slipping closer to death. So there's Mary and Martha, they're, they're caring for their brother, 
They're tired. They're, they're up with him at night. They're, they're cleaning up the message. They're changing his, his wrappings. They're, they're dealing with his high fever. They're, pro- they're afraid. They're afraid. Uh, what's going to happen if our brother dies? We don't hear anything about spouses or parents. So, so if the brother dies, these women maybe are going to be left alone, uh, economically vulnerable in this kind of a culture. But each day they're hoping. Each day they're, they're hoping that, that maybe today is the day that Jesus shows up. Maybe Jesus is on his way here right now. Maybe, maybe he'll, he'll come in that door at any moment. Maybe that's what's going to happen. Or, or maybe, maybe he won't even have to come, but maybe Jesus can just say the word from wherever he is and Lazarus can be healed at a distance. He's done that before with the centurion's son. So Jesus is going to come. He's going to do something. But it doesn't happen. One day passes, another day passes, another, and sooner or later, it's been a week since they sent the messenger, and Jesus doesn't come, Jesus doesn't heal, and then the worst happens. Lazarus dies. So picture Mary and Martha. They're in the house, their brother having breathed his last. They're crying. They're grieving. Their, their hearts are broken. And, and, and just picture the blur of activity around them. They can't even make sense of it as the people of the village are there and they're, they're wrapping up the body and messages are going to Jerusalem and people are coming out from Jerusalem. Some of them probably professional mourners hired for the occasion, maybe others friends and, and other family members. And, and they would be getting ready to open up the family tomb. They're going to put them in there the same day. That's how they did it in that culture. So they had a funeral and the mourning period began traditionally seven days. And for all of it, Jesus is a no-show. He missed the illness. He missed the last words. He missed the last breath. He missed the funeral. Now he's missing the mourning. Can you imagine how Mary and Martha felt? Their brother's lost. And where was Jesus? Can you sympathize? Just in this service, Pastor Dave prayed for, for one of our own who just yesterday lost family members in a car accident. Where, where was Jesus for that? I remember when I was 21 getting uh, woken up one morning by a phone call, 5 o'clock in the morning. It was about my friend Matt. You see, just a month before this, Matt and I had graduated university together. Two weeks before this, Matt had been there standing next to me at my wedding. But the news in the phone call was bad. Matt's dead. He's been killed by a drunk driver. So where was Jesus? Another friend from university had a daughter, Alistair. She was just a year old. They found cancer. So they started going to the doctors, doing all the treatments. They started a blog. They were posting updates, gathering people to pray. They're trusting the Lord. All kinds of people, you know, the whole church is praying for them. Five years of fighting this. Five years of doctors and hospitals and ups and downs, and then she dies. Six years old. And where was Jesus? Because we've all had those times where we've been there, where, we, where we've cried out to Jesus and said, Lord, do something. Lord, heal my brother who's sick. Lord, save my child who's lost. Lord, I just need a job so I can feed my family. Lord, do that but then it seems like he's absent. It seems like he's not hearing, like he's not listening, like he didn't get the message. 
And then the tragedy that you've been praying doesn't happen does happen. And loss finds us. How can we face that kind of loss? How can we persist as Christians through that kind of loss when we ask Jesus to come and he does not? The days keep going by for Mary and Martha. Four days after the burial, maybe it's 10 days at this point after they sent out the message for help. They're in the house. They're sitting shiva. They're grieving. And somebody comes in and says, Jesus is on the way. He's outside the village. So Mary goes out there and she meets him in verse 21. Uh, sorry, Martha goes out there. Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's what's on their minds. Why wasn't he there? What would have happened if he had come? See, see and then Mary says exactly the same thing. Verse 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And that's what the people around them are wondering. The Jews wonder it too. In verse 37, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? If only you'd been here, Lord. This didn't have to happen. You had the power to stop it, didn't you? So why didn't you? We know he does miracles. Why didn't he do one this time? But we might think, well, well, that means he doesn't care. It's because Jesus doesn't care. It's because he doesn't love us. That's why he, he didn't intervene in the middle of this situation. Maybe Mary and Martha thought that. But this text so points out, so emphasizes for us that that's not true. It's not because he doesn't love them. Look at verse 3. This is, again, this is the one who you love is ill. Then later on at the tomb, Jesus is, is weeping and, and grieving the death of his friend. Verse 36, the Jews say, see how he loved him. Jesus loved this man. He loves this family. Look at verse 5. It's incredible. Now, Jesus loved, and, and in the original, it's emphatic. It's like Jesus really loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. And then look at the first word of verse 6. So... So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he, loved, where, <clears throat> where he was. Do you see that? Not he loved them, but for some reason he delayed. He loved them, but we can't understand why he stayed back. But it says he loved them, so he delayed. Somehow his, the reason for his delay, it was motivated by his love for this family. Sometimes God's love does not take the form of acting right away. Sometimes God's love looks like delay. Because Jesus loved this family so much, he wanted them to see something. He had a better plan for them than they had for themselves. And look at verse 4. He says what it is. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That's what he wants them to see. That's what he wants him to see. He wants him to see that this illness is temporary. This illness might lead to death, but this illness does not stop with death. Death is not going to be the end of this story. And that changes things. That changes things. That means that in all of the loss, there is a meaning. That's what Jesus is saying. In, in, in the whole thing, the whole thing, the, the whole illness, Lazarus feeling badly, Lazarus missing work, Lazarus being in bed, the sisters taking care of him, all of the pain, 
all of the suffering, all of the inconvenience, all of the loss, all of the grieving, all of the mourning, and all of even the death, and this whole thing, Jesus is saying, there's meaning in that. I'm showing my glory through that. It's kind of like in John chapter 9. John chapter 9, Jesus is walking along, and you see in the first verse, he comes across a man who's been blind from birth. Think about this, an adult man. He's been suffering from this blindness for how long? 30 years, 40 years, 50 years? His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And that's what it means when it says in 11.4 that this is for the glory of God. It's saying that God wants to show his works. God wants to display his glory in this world. God wants people, all people of the world, to know what he is like. And sometimes the way that he displays that glory is through pain and through hurt and through suffering and and in ways that we can't and won't and don't understand. He shows his glory in suffering. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't grieve. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't weep and, and feel lost. After all, Jesus wept. In verse 35. But it means somehow in this loss, there is glory. God is showing glory. And we don't always know why that is. But in this text, we know because he shows us. So look at verse 6. Jesus stays. He gets the message. He stays two days longer where he is. Now let's think about this for a second. When the messenger comes to Jesus, this person is sick. Lazarus is still alive at that time. Then it says in verse 6, Jesus delays two days. And then just a little bit later in verse 11, Jesus tells the disciples, Lazarus has died, so now let's go. So you see that? So the death of Jesus somehow knows Lazarus has died two days later. And now let's set out. Let's take the four-day journey back to Bethany to see him. But it's a four-day journey. So that means that if he had left right when he got the message, he wouldn't have gotten there before Lazarus died. He would have gotten there two days late instead of four days late. So how does that difference? How does the difference between two days and four days show the glory of God? I think we can see this when we think about how medicine was in that day. Medicine was very primitive back then. You didn't go to the hospital and get hooked up to all the machines that show the status of your your brain and your heart and your lungs and all these different things. You just kind of saw someone and they were, you know, if they were ill, they would just sort of slip into death. The exact moment was not always clear. And what this means is that, that every now and then they got it wrong. So every now and then they would see, okay, here's this person and they've died. They would be getting ready to bury them and they'd be even wrapping them up and having the funeral and the person would, would suddenly sit up and say, oh, like, what are you doing? I was just, I was just unconscious. Now I'm good. And it was very awkward. And so the Jews developed this explanation. They had this tradition. They, they said, well, what's going on there? is that when a person dies, their spirit comes out of them, but the spirit like hangs around nearby for three days. Just it's looking for a chance to get back in. If it finds that opportunity to get back in, then then it will, and the person will wake up. But after three days, no, the spirit's gonna move on to the next thing. And and so basically they're saying, when we declare a person dead, that's like 99% sure. But there's still that 1% chance. But when they start to smell, no, 100%, that's for sure. And see, this two days, it's about getting from 99% to 100%. Two other occasions in the gospel, Jesus had had reversed death. In Mark chapter 5, 
Jairus' daughter is sick and dies. Luke chapter 7, there's a widow's son who dies. And Jesus miraculously, incredibly, brings both of these back to life. But in both cases, it's immediately after they've died. So here's the person, they fall asleep, Jesus wakes them up. It's a miracle. But see, somebody could say, some naysayer over there could look at that and say, "Ah, I don't think that person was really dead. Well, that little girl, she was just, you know, she was sick, yes. He helped her, yes, but she wasn't really dead. So four days, though, four days, you're sure. Four days, you're sure, because we have science now, and we, and we know that death, death is death. Dead means dead. In fact, the second that your heart stops beating, the very same second, your body's cells and tissues, they stop receiving oxygen, and that means they start to die. Your brain cells are the first to go. They are dead within a few minutes. Four minutes after you die, decomposition begins to set in. Three hours after death, the muscles become stiff and rigid. They call it rigor mortis. Twelve hours after death, the body feels cool to the touch. Internal heat is going away. That process is releasing these enzymes inside the body that are causing cells actually to eat themselves from the inside out. It's called autolysis or self-digestion. Two days after death, the internal organs are, are, have decomposed that's letting off gases, which is causing those horrible smells, and it causes bloating. They say that the body can, can swell to about almost twice its normal size by three or four days after death. About this time, the maggots get to work, and they start eating the flesh, and a colony of maggots are very efficient. They can consume 60% of a body in just seven days. And look at verse 38. Sorry, verse 39. Mary's maybe been around some dead bodies before because Mary says, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. It's a nice way to say it, kind of euphemistic. By this time there will be an odor. The fact of the matter is is that if you were someone who knew Lazarus during his life and they opened that tomb and you went inside and had a look at what you could see, what what you saw in that tomb would not in any way resemble the Lazarus that you knew during his life. At that point, four days after death, what you would see, there would be this unrecognizable, putrid, bloated corpse in the process of being eaten by bugs. Lazarus is gone. Lazarus is no more. He's not like a computer that's like powered off and somebody just needs to like press the button, you know, get some of those, you know, things like and charge him back up. It's not like that. You don't just need to restart his heart. You You don't need to turn on his brain. There is no heart. There is no brain. It's all gone. Lazarus is gone. Raising this corpse from the dead, then, is a matter of regeneration. It's a matter of recreation. With man, this is impossible. No man can do this. No man can recreate a human body. But in 1140, look at verse 40. Jesus comes to the tomb, and what does he say to them? Same thing he said back in verse 4. He said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Because, y'all, the one who created with a word, he can recreate with a word. So he comes to the tomb in verse 43. He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. He's good. He's ready to go. He's himself again. He's back. He's been remade. Dead four days recreated. That's what Jesus can do. 
And over the last four weeks in this sermon series, we, we, we've seen Jesus' incredible power in so many ways. We've seen Jesus' authority over nature. We've seen his power over disease. We've seen him, him, him working in the human body. We've seen his power over natural forces, and we've seen him changing the weather. But this miracle, this, this climactic miracle of all, the last of the signs that John gives to us, shows that Jesus has the very power of life and death. I am the resurrection and the life, he says in verse 25. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus holds the keys to life and death. That door is one that only he can unlock. And so Martha, verse 25, she's kind of got this, this, this hope. She's, she's a good Orthodox Jew. She believes in this afterlife. And she says, I know that he'll rise again on the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus is saying more than that. He's saying, no, I am the one. I'm the one. I'm the only one who can, by speaking a word, reverse the curse of death. Resurrection is about how somebody relates to me. That's what he's saying. And look at verse 25. Resurrection in the life. And then he says, whoever. You see that word, whoever? He's saying it's not just about Lazarus. This is not just about one guy and what Jesus did for this one guy. But this is about anybody. This is about whoever believes in me. That's what Jesus is saying. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. All of us are humans. We're all temporal. We'll all live for a set period of time, and then our bodies will expire. It's appointed for man once to die and then face judgment. One day we will atone, or we, we will answer for all that we've done in this life. But Jesus is saying something different is possible. He's saying, come to me, believe in me, follow me, and then you can all be Lazarus. He'll do this same miracle with every one of you, he says. Whoever believes can live. Death is universally inevitable, but resurrection is universally available. Lazarus is just the foretaste. He's, he's the preview. After all, Lazarus, he was raised, but one day he would die again. He's not still around today. But he's saying, Christ is saying, I can do this. In Christ, we have resurrection unto eternal life. So brothers and sisters, whatever you're facing today, whatever sickness, whatever tragedy is in your life now or maybe in your life later, know that your sickness is not unto death, but it's for the glory of God. And for the one who believes, here's, this is it. This is how you face loss. Even as you grieve, even as you weep, you've got to cling to this hope, to this hope of resurrection. This confidence that, that your Savior isn't absent. Where is Jesus? Where is Jesus when my loved one dies? Why didn't he come? Why isn't he there? The answer is right here. The answer is that he is there. He was always there. He's there all the time. He continues to love. He continues to care. He's done everything to make this tragedy resolve into something good. So he's showing his glory to you. He's showing his glory to the people around you. He's showing his glory through you and through your tragedy to people that you may never even see and know until the resurrection. And so we can have confidence in that. We can have that confidence that just like Lazarus' death and the sisters' loss wasn't the end of, our, of their story, for you as a Christian, your loss and your death is never the ending 
but it's simply a continuation of God showing his glory to you and through you as you are changed from one degree of glory to another. It's kind of like the, the Avengers, Infinity War. Um, spoiler alert. So there's this movie, and there's these superheroes, and it ends badly. Like, most of the superheroes die. Like, one-third of all the people everywhere are, are killed at the end. The bad guys win. Take it by itself. It's a very tragic story. It's a terrible story of loss. But I don't have any inside information, but I do, like, read the Internet sometimes. And it seems like they're making a sequel to this movie. And, and I just expect, because I, I, I've seen other, you know, movies before, I just expect that in this sequel... Something's going to happen somehow, some way, and all these superheroes that like disappeared into dust, they're going to come back somehow. And I bet they're going to win. I think the ending for the superheroes is going to be a happy one. And so you just look at like Spider-Man, for example. Here's Spider-Man. He's just a teenager. You know, he's like n not even yet to the prime of his life, and he's killed by this bad Thanos, and that's just this, this terrible thing, right? Cut down in his youth. But I think what's going to become clear that the best days of Spider-Man are still to come. And see, what seems like then a terrible ending is actually a terrible middle because the end is good. The end is good. And Jesus is saying that. He's saying, look beyond physical death. He's saying, when you can get beyond what's happening right now and look with the perspective of resurrection, you can see that for everybody who believes, brothers and sisters, all of you here, the end of the story is the same and it's good. It's a story of resurrection. It's a story of life. It's a story of hope. In that resurrection, we'll be with Christ in his new creation. We will have life and we will have it eternally. We will be there with him in his city, worshiping him. You think of the story of Job, or maybe you say Job. It's spelled that way, so that makes sense. But Job in the Bible, remember in the Old Testament, Job is this guy and he's wealthy and he's comfortable and he's got all the stuff and all the toys and, and all the farms and whatever you had back then, donkeys and things like that. And so Job's really wealthy, but tragedy strikes. And he loses everything. He loses his house. He loses his children. They're all killed. He loses his farms. He loses his crops. Everything. Job loses everything. He even loses his health. The boils come on his body. And then his best friends are there. And they're really miserable. And they don't encourage him. And his wife's, you know, not much of a help either. He, this guy's really suffering. The worst tragedy that can happen to somebody. And the, through it all, he maintains his faith. And you know what happens? Because at the end of, book, of the book, after 41 chapters of tragedy... We did Job chapter 42, and it says, The Lord restored the fortunes of Job, and, jo and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. See, Job's tragedy wasn't the end of his story. It was just the middle. The end was still to come. And it says, And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. Brothers and sisters, that's the promise that Jesus is making to you right here. He's saying that this broken world will do its worst. That tragedy will come, that tragedy will strike you, that, that pain and sorrow and suffering and death will happen, but amidst all that, your last days will be more blessed than your beginning. You are all like Job. Whatever tragedy and suffering you face, you are 100% guaranteed in Christ that your ending will be a good one. And so here's the point. If you're taking notes, write this down. Face loss. As a Christian, face loss because you believe he is the resurrection. Face loss because you believe he's the resurrection. After 
saying this, after making this promise, Jesus turns to Martha in verse 26 and says, do you believe this? He's saying, he's not just saying, you know, do do you like me? Do you follow me? Do you think my teaching is good? He's saying, can you take a step beyond that? Take, Take the next step, Martha, even as you are suffering and you're at this time of greatest loss, can you look at me and trust in me and, and bet everything, bet everything you have, all of your hope for happiness in this life and in the world beyond, can you bet it all on what I just said, the truth that I am the resurrection and the life? Do you believe this, Martha? That's what trust is. That's what belief is. Later, John says that these signs, these miracles are written down. This is chapter 20, verse 31. They're written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You know, we've heard about all these miracles these last few weeks, and and Jesus did these miracles not just because he's like a cool superhero and can do cool things, but he performed these specific miracles to bring about a specific response, the response of you casting everything upon him, casting everything else aside and saying, yes, Lord, I believe. Yes, I believe that you are the resurrection and the life, so do you believe this? then you can face loss because you believe he's the resurrection. And now listen, we, we, could just, we could stop right there. That's enough, right? But there's something more for us in this text. Because here's the thing. Most of us, we're, we're kinda, we tend to be people who can rise to the occasion. When loss finds us, you know, we've been well-trained, we're in a good church, people are around us, often we, we step up and we, and we act with faith and we, and we keep hoping. But even so, many of us, maybe the majority, I think all of us, me included, we can live the majority of the time, the majority of our lives with a mindset that does not go along with that, with a different kind of mindset, and that's the mindset that's not about the resurrection, but instead is about keeping keeping now. We're hardwired to keep whatever we can, to grab a little bit more money, to grab a little bit more prosperity, to grab a little bit more security, and then to keep it, to keep and to hold on to what we have. The disciples in this text had this this mindset of keep. Look at verse 8. Do you remember the background we already said in chapter 10? He's in Jerusalem. The Jews are getting ready to stone him. He just barely escaped. It's a close call. So now he's in this kind of like retreat, this safer place. And, and so when the disciples hear about Lazarus, the messenger comes, Lord, the one who you love is ill. Of course, from Mary and Martha's perspective, it's literally a matter of life and death. But from the disciples' perspective, hey, we like Lazarus. He's a good guy but this is not good. This is not safe. There's really nothing we can do. We're here where we need to be. We're in the safe place. Really sorry about Lazarus. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? They're saying there are lines that we should not cross here, Jesus. They've given what they can. They've left their, their home and their family for long periods of time. They've, they've, they've sacrificed in their careers. They've, they've endured hardship, but there's a limit there. They're willing to serve. They're willing to sacrifice some, but they're not really willing to lose. Their mindset is keep. 
keep their safety, keep their long-term prospects, keep their very lives. We all have this keep mindset. That's what's come naturally to us. Let's, let's play it safe. Let's live to fight another day. But here's Jesus. And even as he's thinking about Mary and Martha and Lazarus, he's also looking at these disciples and he's thinking about them. He's thinking about what he has to teach these disciples right now because he's looking forward. He knows he's going to the cross. He knows he's going to die for sins. He knows he's going to rise from the dead. He knows that he's going to go back into heaven and that these men, these very disciples, are the ones that are going to need to go and spread the word of God to the nations, to go and found the church. And looking at that, Jesus says, he needs them to see. He needs them to understand that he needs people who are willing to lose. So he gives this kind of cryptic response. Verse 9. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the night, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. You see, that time most people worked in the daylight, right? You didn't have all these nice, big, electric, shining lights. And so they worked in the daytime, and, and then, you know, when the light was there, you worked. When the sun went down, no more light. Work was at an end. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, quitting time is coming, but it's not here yet. There's still work to do, y'all. The the sun is still up. That means there's still work to do. Quitting time is not here yet. What he's saying to them is he's saying, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to Jerusalem, and you are coming with me to Jerusalem. He's asking them to risk everything and voluntarily lose, to lose their security, to follow them into the jaws of death. And then Thomas speaks up. One of the disciples, we're all fond of Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas. He knows what Jesus is asking. So verse 16, Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. I don't exactly know what Thomas meant by that. Is he being sarcastic? Or is he being sincere and and committed? But, But either way, he goes. Either way, Thomas here, he he knows the risk. He knows what they're up against. And he still answers the call, the call to go and die. And this was a mission to the death. The disciples were not wrong about that. So if Jesus had loved this present life, if Jesus had, had had the goal to keep, this could have all blown over. Could have, you know, he could have just stayed. He could have stayed back. He could have stayed in security. Maybe he would have lived and preached, you know, for 50 more years. But the raising of Lazarus had consequences. So look at verse 47. As after Lazarus is raised from the dead, the word gets out. People start believing. People start to say, this guy was dead four days. This guy was rotten. Jesus raised him from the dead. How can you explain that? They believed. So they had a meeting in verse 47. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council together and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. So Lazarus is the trigger, right? The resurrection of a dead man was the moment when Jesus could no longer be tolerated. It was the straw that broke the camel's back. And then verse 53, from from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So by leaving safety and going up to Bethany, Jesus was embracing loss. He was taking steps that would lead inevitably to his own crucifixion and death. And he knew it. As he stood there in front of Lazarus' tomb, 
and he called them to see the glory of God and what he was doing. It wasn't just about resurrection, but it was about substitution. Because by bringing Lazarus out of the tomb, he was putting himself into the tomb. Lazarus would keep his life, but Jesus would lose his. So the disciples' assessment of the danger was right, but their response to the danger was wrong. Because the equation has changed. Because Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus isn't just the resurrection like in the future, like later, like when you die, but he is the life. He's the life now. He's the resurrection and the life. He's, he's both. Resurrection is this future hope. It's the, the life after death. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. But life is promising something different. Life is promising something now. It's a new perspective on now, verse 26. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You believe in him now, you're just going to keep on living. You're never going to die. Yes, they'll put you in the tomb, but your life just goes on and on and on and on. That's what he's saying. Resurrection life is not just a future possibility, but it is a present certainty. And what that means then is that, that whatever happens here, that the governments and employers and thieves and cancer, they can hurt you. They can devastate you. But they cannot take the eternal life that in Christ you possess. In Luke 12, 4, Jesus said, do not fear those who can kill the body, but after that, there's nothing more they can do. And here's the lesson for the disciples then, and it's the same lesson for us, which is that the, the same hope, this resurrection hope, the same hope that sustains us when we face loss, that same hope motivates us to embrace loss. You shall never die. So embrace loss. Write down a second point. We said face loss because you believe he's the resurrection. But then second, embrace loss because you believe he's life. Embrace loss because you believe he's life. This text is not just about hoping in resurrection when loss finds you but it's about believing so much in resurrection now that you go find loss. And what if we were that way? What if we were a people who actively embraced loss? What if we opened our mouths and, and proclaimed the gospel and that meant embracing the loss of a visa? What if we planned our next move not, not forward to a nice, comfortable, safe country, but what if we planned to move to some backwards to some dilapidated city or some remote village when that meant embracing the loss of a secure future? What if those of us who are parents in this room, and, and most of us just with, with parents, we've, we've built our lives around teaching our children to gain and to keep? And what if we had the faith to change our direction totally and prepare our children to go find loss, loss for the gospel, loss for Jesus? What are some of you young people that are out here, and, you know, as you think about your future, instead of saying, I'm going to go, you know, be an engineer because that's the most secure job I can possibly find. What if you said, I'm going to become a preacher of the gospel, even when that means embracing the loss of family approval. Or if you said, I am going to be an engineer, but I'm going to be an engineer who preaches the gospel and who uses that to get into the Sudan or someplace where preachers can't go. What if some of us older people 
stepped up and we started giving twice as much as we do now and we embraced the loss of comfort and security because we want to help those preachers go out and do their thing. And, you'll say, and you say, no, no, that's, that's not safe, that's, that's irresponsible, that, that's reckless, that, that's too much. That point is there somewhere. But I, I know a lot of Christians, sorry, I don't know any Christians who give too much. But I know a lot who keep too much. And see, that's believing this lie that, that this life is all that matters. That's really, that's being enslaved enslaved to security, enslaved to keeping, enslaved to saying, this life is all there is. I'm just living for now. I'm living for the next 50, 60, 70 years. And so I got to keep it. I got to keep what I can. I got to do whatever it takes to be secure for these 70 years. And Jesus is saying, that's slavery. But if you're in Christ, y'all, you're free. You are free to embrace loss. You're free to lay your life down. You're free to work while it's day. You're free to pour yourself out for the sake of the gospel, losing whatever you may. And so look what Jesus says in the next chapter. Even as he's entered Jerusalem, we have the triumphal entry. They're planning his execution. The preparations are are going like wild. They're even planning on executing Lazarus because so many people are believing because of Lazarus. Let's kill him too. Look at verse 24, chapter 12, verse 24. He tells the disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. A seed, a seed that's locked in a bank vault, it's safe, but it's worthless. A seed only bears fruit if it's planted in the soil and dies. The same thing is true, Jesus is saying, of your life. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus says there's two ways to live. The way of keeping and the way of losing. Keeping is about treasuring this present life. Keeping is about security. Keeping is the default for all of us. It's about avoiding risk, about avoiding loss. But losing, losing is about following the one who is the resurrection and the life with so much faith, so single-mindedly that all that you could gain in this world, all that you could keep in this world, it just fades by comparison. It's just nothing in comparison with the one who's the resurrection and the life because losing is the way of Jesus. It's the way of resurrection. It's the way of embracing loss for the salvation of men and for the glory of God. There's this wonderful paradox here. That whoever's trying to keep ultimately loses. But whoever's embracing loss, whoever's trying to lose that person, they keep. Keeping leads to death. Losing leads to life. Keeping, the, the keep mindset, it's like finding a beautiful apple. This, this beautiful, glorious apple and, and, and just taking it and putting it up there on the shelf. Putting it on your mantle and, and just looking at it. Just enjoying what it looks like and, and watching it and you just sit down there in your chair and you just look at the apple day by day and day by day it gets a little more withered, gets a little more small, a little more dried up, more dried out. It's not such a beautiful apple anymore. That's keeping. But losing, losing is taking that same apple and it's chopping it into pieces and it's taking those seeds and it's planting them in the ground and then a tree grows out of those seeds 
and more apples grow, and you take those apples and you plant those seeds in the ground, and more trees grow, and you take those apples and plant them in the ground, and more trees, and, and sooner or later, you've got this exponentially beautiful orchard spread as far as the eye can see because losing bears great fruit. And Thomas eventually got it. He wasn't sure about going to Bethany. Later, he wanted proof of Jesus' resurrection. But after that, history and tradition tell us that Thomas's days of keeping safe were over. They say Thomas packed up. He took the long journey to India. He didn't quit before quitting time. He embraced the loss of laboring through hardship. He preached the gospel amidst much opposition. He planted his grain of wheat into the earth, and in the end, he died at the end of a spear. But an hour is coming, Jesus says in 528, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And on that day in Chennai, Thomas is going to come out of the tomb and he's going to be accompanied by thousands and multitudes who, have, who have, are there on that day, who are resurrected like Lazarus on that day because of his loss. And they will be ushered into the presence of Christ and his kingdom for all of eternity. And during that time, when you meet Thomas, he's not going to complain to you about a spear. So face loss because you believe he's the resurrection. And then let's go embrace loss because we believe that he is the life. So do you believe this? Do you believe this? Then let us also go that we may die with him. Father, thank you for your word. May it bear much fruit in our hearts and then may our lives bear much fruit as we go and lose for your glory. Give us that hope that lets us embrace loss in this world and find blessing and hope and joy eternally. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.